electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Morgan Brennan. Kramer has the morning off. NASDAQ is looking to bounce after falling 10% from the highs on Monday, the ninth fastest correction in the comps history. Ten-year yields back down to 154. We do have a three-year auction kicking off a busy week of new supply. Our roadmap begins with the tech turnaround. The NASDAQ 100 set for a sharp rebound as bonds stabilize. Plus, call with the Kathy Wood trade, why the widely watched investor remains so bullish on shares of Tesla. And the reopening trade. The CDC revises guidelines, new vaccine data versus variants, and what it all means for the travel and transportation sectors. We're going to break that all down. Carl? All right, guys, uh, let's uh, kick off this market day. It's going to be interesting, just as yesterday was a little bit surprising. Uh, the Nasdaq, of course, as we said, now 10 and a half from the all-time high. Pretty quick correction, although the bounce this morning, David, is no doubt going to lead some to believe that in a new era, uh, although it will be choppy and a lot of transition involved, that growth and value over time can maybe work together. <laughs> Live in peace. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know, I mean, what we've been seeing, though, to a certain extent is sort of the Failed momentum plays uh, sputtering out, names that we all know well that have had incredible moves, and sort of these new momentum plays, a la Viacom and Discovery, which I'll talk a lot about a bit later in the show, um, forging new heights that really hard to imagine only 60-some-odd days ago. Um, But while the Amazons of the world, the Apples, uh, the Netflixes, that momentum has stalled. And, you know, we, we do, we used to uh, talk a great deal, Morgan, uh, back in our days of the NYC about the influence of quantitatively driven funds, mm-hmm. certainly when they were uh, and continue to be such an important influence. But that is part of what we're seeing here, I think, in terms of the algorithms that power them. Um, never completely sure. And then you've also still got uh, that Reddit trade that, uh, that figures in on the margins and cer- certain names. So, a lot of different moves in a lot of different directions. But today you can see FANG, which has not performed well so far this year, is looking to be up. Yeah. The machines. Uh, I think bottom line, equity futures jump, bond yields retreat. Bonds are continuing. Treasury market in general is going to continue to be in focus this week. Carl mentioned the three-year auction today. You've also got $38 billion in 10 years that are expected to be auctioned off tomorrow. $24 billion in 30-year bonds uh, on Thursday. Speaking to new supply coming to the market, we saw what happened with the seven-year auction just a couple of weeks ago as well. So uh, I think we're not done talking about this story. But to your point, I mean, we have seen this divergence among the major averages. So the Nasdaq yesterday falling more than 2% into correction, closing in correction territory. The Dow reaching an all-time high in trading yesterday. Meantime, I don't know. We always have people on there talking about their barbell investment approach. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe to your point, Carl, it's uh, growth on one end, ultimately, given the shakeout we're seeing in rates and uh, value on the other. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, 
Well, growth is the key term. Uh, yeah. We got the OECD uh, this morning uh, raising their estimates for global growth. Their argument, guys, is that stimulus, which the House is in line to pass tomorrow and send to the White House, is going to add a full percentage point uh, to global growth in 2021. Um, so they take their global estimate to 5.6. It was only 4.2 back in November. U.S., they go to 6.5. It was only 3.2 back in November. And you couple that, David, with some of these internal surveys, NFIB hiring intentions. Goldman with a big note yesterday looking at Hiring intentions, especially in small business, not only going back to pre-pandemic highs, but uh, generational highs. you got to go back. Uh, the charts only go back a few decades. But there's a growing sense that uh, small business is going to need a lot of new workers to handle the new influx mm. of demand. Um, and that's going to bring all kinds of challenges. It's going to be so interesting. Uh, many of those workers, I'll be curious to see where they're actually working from. That's another key point, I think, for this economy. Uh, and, and so many of the things we talk about, uh, again, want to talk a bit more about that. But flexible work schedules will seem to be more the norm, Morgan, than not uh, as we kind of move towards the new normal, um, whatever that may be, uh, with a lot more employment, we hope, certainly, but not necessarily people working in offices the way that they've been accustomed to. Yes. Right. So no, and, 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 yeah. and by the way, David, uh, we'll talk later this morning about Goldman taking Tanger to sell, um, in part because of valuation, but their general view is that uh, retail occupancy is not going to be a straight line back up. I'm sure Kramer would have a lot to say about that uh, if he were here, and we'll talk more with him uh, when, he, when he returns. Uh, guys, Tesla's up 7% in the pre-market. A lot of discussion today about the way in which it has bounced a few times now from very rapid 20% declines. And, of course, Kathy Wood yesterday on Closing Bell talked about how the company is really, over time, becoming a lot more comparable to Apple. Here's what Kathy Wood said. Tesla has already passed through that uh, uh, phase of its life. It did invest aggressively, and it has on four, on, on four metrics, uh, it, it is leading the charge, so to speak. So battery technology costs lower than anyone else's out there and will remain lower. Uh, artificial intelligence chip, it designed its own. No one else has designed its own chip. This is analogous to Apple in the day. Interesting comments from Kathy, by the way, Morgan, who did add to at least DraftKings uh, last night, I think another 800,000 shares. Yeah, it was a, it was a great interview. Um, just to go back to the Tesla piece of this, I'm actually going to highlight Elon Musk's other company, SpaceX, um, because in, you can find more reporting on this on CNBC.com as well from our Michael Sheets. But SpaceX wanting to connect more than just homes to the Starlink satellite that it's putting uh, into orbit right now, that it submitted an FCC request to begin installing and operating terminals on moving vehicles. So think trucks and ships and jets. And Musk even commented on this on, on Twitter, said they're not going to connect Tesla cars to Starlink, uh, that the terminal is much too big, but that this is going to be aircraft, ships, large trucks and RVs. Why do I bring it up? you got Morgan Stanley, Adam Jonas putting out a note uh, this morning as well. It gets to the bigger, broader discussion, David, that we like to have around autonomous vehicles and the capabilities there um, and things like eVTOL, which is those vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that are starting to come to market as well. But in general, the relationship um, space communication, satellite communications is going to have uh, in being able to power this new wave of next generation technologies, including some of those names that Kathy Wood has invested in with uh, her ARC funds. 
Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it, listening to your reporting about Starlink in particular, because it does seem as though it's something we're going to be talking a great deal more about uh, as as it starts to take shape. Uh, yeah, and 5G and running these autonomous networks. You know, there's, you know, in my world, the old wireless world, where we're obviously focused when it comes to 5G nationwide on the three big players, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, and then the question about DISH as well, and their rollout of some sort of nationwide 5G network, perhaps focused on the enterprise, but still somewhat unclear. They obviously do have a great deal of spectrum that they've got to start to put into use. But start, this could be a real thing. Uh, and I, I think not that long ago, Morgan, frankly, I don't think a lot of people thought it would necessarily become a real thing, other than perhaps Mr. Musk, who's made plenty of things become real over the last 10 years. Um, unclear exactly where it's going to fit in, but there would seem to be a great deal of demand for that bandwidth. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to what we're seeing in terms of new space startups that are also coming to market via SPAC. Um, sort of that other bucket of, of new emerging technology and just this race to put more satellites up into orbit to be able to beam back some of these different communication uh, capabilities. It's going to be something we talk about in the next hour as well, Carl. But in the meantime, just to bring it full circle, shares of Tesla up 7.5% this morning and helping to power uh, the major averages higher as we do expect a rebound in the NASDAQ, the Dow, and the S&P um, in less than a half hour. Yeah, we're going to keep our eyes uh, in the meantime, guys, on uh, the healthcare news. Uh, there is reporting out of Reuters, David, that uh, at least on the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine, that this latest lab study out of the New England Journal of Medicine does show some effectiveness against the variant that has been uh, seen prevalent in Brazil. Uh, so that if if that were to uh, if you strung that out uh, to a good outcome would take at least one of the uncertainties hovering over this market out of contention. Yeah. Uh, as you point out, concern about the variants is certainly something we hear a lot from the CDC and the other leaders in the healthcare care uh, world that we uh, that we are listening to. Let's get to Meg Terrell now for more on that story in terms of Pfizer, BioNTech uh, and others as well. Meg. Hey, David. So this is the latest lab study looking at blood taken from people who were in the Pfizer-BioNTech pivotal trial essentially two or four weeks after they got their second dose. So when they are fully protected by these vaccines and what they looked at was the ability of the neutralizing antibodies generated by that vaccine to neutralize the new variants. And they compared that against the strength against an older strain of the coronavirus. And what they found is that for B117, that's the one associated with the UK, uh, and P one, which is associated with Brazil, the neutralization was roughly equivalent for those to the older strain. Now, unsurprisingly, they found against B1351, which is associated with South Africa, the neutralization was robust but lower. Um, and they say that T-cell immunity, of course, may also be involved in protection here. Um, what it shows, though, is that it was still robust across these variants. They do say real-world studies will be known uh, needed to really know how well the vaccines protect against these variants. But really being seen as kind of reassuring news that uh, against these variants, and P1 in particular, because we haven't seen as much data against this variant, uh, that the vaccine does still neutralize. This, of course, is the variant that uh, is associated with potential reinfection rates uh, in Brazil, which are really alarming public health folks, guys. Um, in terms of the prevalence of those variants here in the U.S., it's B117 that really is the most common. More than 3,000 cases have been reported to the CDC. 
uh, B1351, 81 cases, and P1, just 15 cases have been reported here. So, guys, it really is B117 that public health experts here in the U.S. are so concerned about right now just because it is more transmissible, and that's why they say it's so important to get vaccine coverage out there before this has a chance to take off. Carl? Yeah, uh, Meg, with your help, we're going to monitor that, along with the um, ongoing picture of supply and vaccination administration in this country. Uh, I was amazed, Andy Slavitt's uh, tweet yesterday uh, of those 65 and older, um, 60 percent have had uh, have had the vaccine. Seven weeks ago, it was only eight percent, which is uh, mind blowing. Although the wires today, Meg, have some new headlines about J&J being, quote, under stress, according to sources and getting uh, their committed vaccine supply to the EU, which is interesting. I know you've been paying a lot of attention to vaccine nationalism over the last couple of days. <clears throat> Absolutely. And it's been especially difficult, it seems like, for the EU in terms of getting supply. We've been seeing similar things with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so a lot of kind of um, quibbles, stronger words maybe uh, than that, coming out um, in European markets over getting access to vaccines. And, you know, we have all of these targets that we've been hearing about, but this is a delicate process. And normally we are not paying such close attention to uh, supplies of drugs and vaccines, and we don't need them so urgently in such huge quantities. And so this could be a bumpy road, but, um, you know, certainly getting a lot more people vaccinated here in the U.S. pretty quickly. Yeah, Meg, I, you know, this morning I read a stat and as I start to dig into the data and I realize it's a little more complicated, but it makes sense. Um, I read a stat that more people here in the U.S. have been vaccinated now than have actually had the virus. Um, so I think it sort of just speaks to how quickly we are seeing this ramp that you're talking about. I am curious, though, um, and I realize that there's still it's like a trickle of data points right now. And I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, but pregnant women and nursing mothers, what do we know so far about vaccines and the impact uh, on that front as well. So the companies themselves uh, that make the vaccines are starting their own studies um, in pregnant women. And so they'll have more definitive data on that. But there are real world evidence from thousands of pregnant women who have taken these vaccines that are on the market. Um, So far, what we've heard from the folks at the CDC, they've done presentations on this, uh, nothing that would raise alarms. Um, And so here in the U.S., you know, they are basically saying for pregnant women who are at higher risk of uh, severe effects from COVID-19, talk with your doctor about whether this is the right thing to do for you. I mean, they have to acknowledge that pregnant women were not included in the clinical trials, uh, but they are gathering evidence around it. Um, And the picture so far, what we hear is that it's looking pretty good. All right, Meg, thanks for that. Uh, Meg Terrell, uh, helping us understand everything going on with uh, pharma and vaccines, uh, not only today, but for the past uh, year plus. We'll take a break here. A lot of calls to get to this morning. Got earnings on uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Stitch Fix, including some sell-side names uh, referring to uh, Chipotle, Oracle. We mentioned Tanger, Tesla, and some hard lines like Home Depot and Restoration Hardware. Don't go away. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Coming off a record close for the Dow Transports, airlines had to extend their rally as the COVID relief package moves closer to becoming law and vaccine rollouts accelerate. Helene Becker covers the airlines for Cowan, and she joins us now. Helene, good morning. Morning, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Want to get your outlook on the passenger airlines to start, given the fact that we do have this latest stimulus bill uh, making its way back through the House right now expected to be signed into law before the end of the week. Uh, and also the fact that some of the data are starting to suggest that we're seeing a, a greater uptick in travel by people in general right now. Yes. So that's what we're thinking. Um, I'm not so I've said this before in our writings that I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense for the government to keep giving the airlines money until you open things up and people actually travel. Mm. And then to your latter point, um, the fact that we're seeing, you know, more than a million people traveling, eight of the last 14 days, we've had over a million people traveling, which is pretty significant. We think by the end of this month, we'll regularly be there. And then by Memorial Day weekend, we'll be somewhere between let's say 1.1 million and 1.4 million. And we think that as more vaccine gets into people's arms, there's going to be um, a jailbreak and people will want to just get out and travel. And we think this summer is going to be really good um, on a relative basis, uh, really being, you know, good versus last year, not so good versus two years ago. Um, And then after Labor Day, we'll see what happens. But we're not that concerned as much anymore after Labor Day because we think enough people will be vaccinated that they'll still travel. And you have people working from anywhere. And so they're going to have to think about traveling maybe back to their offices as offices start to reopen later this year. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I I just traveled a couple of weeks ago. I was pretty stunned. I mean, both of the airplanes in both directions were completely full, even all the middle seats. Um, So given that fact and given what you're expecting around travel trends in general this year, whether it's leisure, whether it's business, whether it's domestic or international, uh, which names are best poised to capture the recovery, at least initially? Yeah, so so clearly domestic, right? Domestic leisure is going to be your your number one choice this um, this year, and even within the Americas, we think that you'll have regional travel. I'm not sure people want to travel internationally, but thank you for traveling. Um, and I think we're going to see um, Spirit S A V E Southwest, which is a pretty crowded trade at this point. 
um, Allegiant, ALGT. Those are our, our three top ideas for domestic leisure. And then we like United as an outperform. If we're wrong and international comes back sooner rather than later, then United is most leveraged to international with 50% of their capacity in those markets. I see on the tape today, Helene, um, Frontier is going to try again on the NASDAQ. Uh, they'll go under FRNT. Uh, do you expect a lot of new entrants? I mean, could this be sort of the way it used to be in the 90s where you had guys going to the desert, picking up some spare uh, empty planes and, and crowding capacity again? So this is normally the point in time when you would have new airlines start up and you breeze, breeze airways, the air, airline based in Utah that David Nealman started, um, just got approval over the weekend to um, start flying later this year. You have Avilo, um, which is the Houston based airline that would start up. So these guys can get aircraft. Um, but remember, Breeze is going with the A220, which is the um, Airbus variant of a 100 seat aircraft. And their mission is going to be small to medium sized cities. So it's a slightly different model. But I think to your point, it's not so much picking up the aircraft as picking up the labor. And with pilots on furlough, even though the government tried to prevent furloughs for airline companies, there still were some because this recovery is taking so much longer than people thought it would a year ago that um, you have some people employed that would be looking for opportunities and Breeze and Avilo and yeah. other new airlines would, would make sense of that. Helene, the, uh, the, the amount of equity issuance, not to mention debt, uh, by many of the airlines has been prodigious, to say the least. I'm just curious, do you think it's come to an end? How is it impacting the overall dilution numbers that you look at? And how do you sort of think about it a year uh, having passed since they started to vigorously issue and continue to? Yes, raise debt. As long as the Fed remains um uh, what is the right word, accommodating, the airlines have no issues because they'll be able to continue to raise capital. And we certainly see that happening. The way we're thinking about it is the dilution for equity holders. Um, if we had thought previously, for an example, that United was going to earn, and this is not a great example, but if we thought they were going to earn $13 a share in 2022, let's say, and now we think they're going to earn $11 a share and we had a $110 price target and now we would have a 95 or or $100 price target. So the upside would theoretically be limited as you start to think about the airlines earning money. Right now, because all the airlines are still cash flow negative and are still not earning money, the opportunity is what we think will happen going forward. And we are valuing these stocks on 2023 numbers, but I think that some of them are actually back to pre-pandemic levels, which makes it really hard to think about buying them yeah. now. I mean, obviously, they're up on the reopen trade and, and yeah. things getting better and vaccine and so on. But it's going to be very interesting to see how they trade after we get past, yeah. let's say, the next month or so. Yeah, of course, there's implications yeah. for the aircraft lessers as well. Not to mention yes. on the cargo side, which we didn't get to with ATSG, but we will another time because we're coming up against the closing bell. Helene, thanks Got for joining you. us. I mean, opening bell. Thanks oh, for my goodness. <laughs> thanks for having me, Morgan and team. <laughs> thanks, Helene. Yeah, we will get the opening bell. Uh, long Tuesday ahead, of course, as we mentioned, with some bond supply. Take a look at futures. We're back in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. 
like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Take a look at some of the NASDAQ 100 gainers. Uh, there's news around all of these, which we'll get to after the opening bell. Uh, but for the time being, Tesla is going to take the lead spot up 7% after some of the pressure and the billions on paper that Musk has lost in the last couple of weeks. Opening bell in a moment. Don't go anywhere. We mentioned the NASDAQ 100 this morning. Take a look at what it's done, obviously, since the beginning of the year. Peaking in mid-February, fell below the 50-day right around uh, February 23rd. David, uh, Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley still thinks we go down to the 200-day which would uh, I mean, be about an 8% decline. His general point of view, David, yeah. is that once we lap some of these anniversaries and uh, a 12-month momentum stock is no longer a tech stock, it's an energy stock, it's a bank stock, is going to accelerate that rotation. And we'll see what kind of consequences that has for the, for the major indices. Yep, talking about the relative fundamentals for cyclicals being better than secular growers. And to your point, exactly that, tougher comps. And more value in a terminal year as we uh, get ready for that opening bell, Carl. Yeah, let's get it. There's the S&P 500 at the bottom of your screen. Um, get to some of the calls that we got today. I mentioned the, the Tanger uh, downgrade over at uh, Goldman today, David. Um, they go to sell. Um, occupancy levels, they think, get worse from here, not better. Not because the economy doesn't reopen, but because retailers, in their view, are reconsidering their retail footprint. They cite the Disney stores as one example, which um, string that out and it will have implications for commercial real estate all across the country. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting thing when you talk about commercial real estate at this point. I I venture into midtown Manhattan virtually every day to exercise. uh, And it is notable how quiet it still is. A handful of uh, office workers, but nothing like what it looked like, uh, let's call it, even a year ago or 2019. But the question from there, I think, becomes what will it look like when we do return uh, fully, uh, which thankfully could be fairly soon. But, it, it, you know, it, it does appear that I mean, I don't know if you had, a, you know, uh, I'll get to Viacom a little bit. They're trying to sell BlackRock, uh, the old CBS headquarters there on 52nd Street mm-hmm. and 6th Avenue. What do you pay for a building like that in midtown Manhattan these days? You know, that had been on the block for a while. Too bad they didn't get it done early. I, I just don't know, Carl, what you would do uh, at this point in terms of whether we're ever going to see the levels of occupancy in some of these buildings. And then to the point you were making or about retail and surrounding retail, what it's really going to look like. I spoke with Dirk Vandeput uh, last week. He's the CEO of Mondelez. But we also talked about this issue and just sort of asking about the return to work um, and the future of work. And I thought he had an interesting answer, and we're starting to see a lot more of this discussion. Take a listen about flexible workforces. Mm. I don't think we will in a, be in an easy position to bring people back. I think it was, uh, I always say it was easy to get people not to come anymore. It's going to be very different or very difficult to bring them back. We want to offer people the opportunity to organize their lives in the way they want as long as they get the work done in a quality way. So if, if I would put a percentage on it, maybe the remote workers would be 5%. I do think that another 80% will be flexible worker 
And then there's going to be 10 to 15 percent that have to be in the office every day. At a part of our Evolve series of interviews, uh, and then you take a look at Shares of Mondelez. Now, again, they got a lot of people, Morgan, who are in factories, who are, mm-hmm. who are making product. But the office workers, I thought that was very interesting. And you hear it more and more oh, often yeah. from CEOs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and I think it also speaks to this, quote unquote, hub and spoke model. You're hearing more discussion about where office space and flexible workspace is concerned. And it shines light again on some of those names we've talked about in the past, whether it's a WeWork, whether it's an industrious and the opportunities um, for some of those maybe newer upstart players to come in and uh, and cater to some of these more flexible scenarios as well. Um, You know, you guys were talking about retail just before. I also want to highlight a name that reported earnings this morning, talking about recovery and things getting back online and this return to, or I guess a new normal, uh, you know, post-pandemic normal, Dick's Sporting Goods, which is under pressure this morning, too. Um, Better than expected numbers, 19.3%, comparable same-store sales um, growth, and yet the outlook, slowing sales uh, are expected in this year ahead, and you're seeing that name under pressure down 4% right now, and I think it speaks to, and by the way, you could say this about Vista or some of the other retailers that are more focused on outdoors. Outdoors has been the other area um, within retail that saw strength in the midst of the pandemic. Um, I think it's maybe potentially a gauge on, the, on this return to normal as well, uh, and what those winners and losers that, as Bob Pisani put it yesterday, Carl, that reversion to the mean within equities is going to look like this year as more things do get online. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, NASDAQ here with an early 2% plus pop. Uh, it's definitely a day, Morgan, in which uh, tech is going to lead and banks and energy are going to be uh, relative laggards, at least in the early part of this session. A lot of media stuff, which I want to get David's take on yeah. as well. A couple of things. One, David, uh, Olympics. Uh, Kyoto has a headline that they're probably going to either limit or bar foreign spectators at the games. Um, But at least they're having a discussion about how the games will happen, not if the games will happen. And that has big implications for both Discovery and Disney. I'm sorry, Comcast, our parents. Disney is the other story, which um, we pointed out this morning on Twitter, has outperformed Netflix by 90 percent. Uh, since last July, huge reopening play. I'm looking at some pictures here this morning, David, Amazing. of them putting uh, the, some of the final engineering touches on the Tron light cycle ride at Magic Kingdom. So these are the <laughs> kinds of things we're going to be talking about as we get into the summer. And, and we do enjoy talking about them. And your point on, on Disney, I mean, there was, it was a time not that long ago, and we did point this out, of course, when Netflix had a larger market value than did Disney. Uh, and if you'd gone back a year, you might have actually thought that that would only widen But in fact, to your point, Disney now a $360 billion value and Netflix, which is still down over almost 6% this year, uh, $225 billion. Of course, as we pointed out many times, investors have become um, completely enamored with the direct-to-consumer strategy uh, that is embodied by Disney Plus and uh, are rewarding the company for executing on it. And then everything else that may come with reopening, a la Mm -hmm. theme parks and people going to movie theaters is just going to be uh, potentially additional. Just don't hear that much about ESPN. But, you know, the two names that have captured the attention of old media investors, or at least most of whom, by the way, have been short the names, have been Discovery and Viacom. And i got to show them again because yesterday was extraordinary. Viacom shares were up, I think they ended up the day, what, 12, 13 percent yesterday. Now, both are down today, Discovery and Viacom. Still, one up 118 percent, the other, well, you see it right there, almost identical moves in 67 days. 67 
days. I, I, at the beginning at of the show, that. I was talking, yeah, about price momentum, you know, versus uh, busted momentum stocks. Now today, it's reversing ever so slightly. But I've also been asking, who's buying this? You know, who? Listen, you could understand Viacom was uh, a year ago, or let's say 11 months ago, at five times EBITDA. Then it traded up to 10. All right, fine. Now it's at about 31 times uh, expected free cash flow in 2021. It's way more expensive than many other names in its sector and even things you might compare it to outside its sector, but that also sell uh, advertising. Is it potentially viewed as a reopening play? Everything I hear indicates advertising is going to be quite strong to the point you were making earlier, Carl, just in general about economic momentum that we may get. But there are a lot of questions about what the buying is here. You've got guys who are covering their short positions, but then new short positions are getting opened as well. Uh, does have healthy short interest. The quants and algos, Morgan, are certainly active here. But, man, this move has been unreal. I can't tell you uh, any number of uh, current and former executives from Viacom, for example, I've spoken to who had $65 options, figured they'd never, ever see any money on them. Suddenly yesterday, like, oh, my God. And they're trying to call, you know, whoever it might be at Morgan Stanley, I think, that runs the plan. Nobody can get through because they're all calling (laughs) and saying, sell, sell. I've suddenly got, you know, a lot more money than I ever anticipated. Um, But uh, that's what's (laughs) happening. Unfortunately, it never seems to quite happen that way to Comcast. It certainly didn't happen to GE when I owned all those (laughs) options. But, hey, uh, it's been an amazing move. We'll continue to follow it very closely. I'm just curious. I mean, and maybe not Viacom as much as, like, say, Discovery. But, uh, I mean, we're seeing more and more streaming offerings come to market. At some point, you've got to think there's going to be some sort of uh, consolidation, more content coming under one umbrella. I mean, is that part of the story here or no? Not yet. Not yet. You know, I mean, listen, Viacom has played in sort of consolidation conversation, as has Discovery, even the idea that the two might come together one day. There's always been talk eventually that if uh, AT&T were to finally sort of tire of the Time Warner assets, would there be a transaction with our parent company spinning out NBC Universal, combining it? This is all stuff that is talked about a great deal. We've been had conversation about Fox and what its strategy will be. It's obviously far smaller with its focus just on news and sports. But right now, to your point, you've got this proliferation of these direct-to-consumer platforms. Every name we showed there uh, has one. Uh, and, you know, the question becomes, how many can you really have? Uh, Fox obviously doesn't, but otherwise, how many How do you even navigate them uh, when you're at home? But one of the key considerations right now is the NFL. And I will tell you, there's any number of people who say, Viacom, just sell some stock. Same way they've been saying it with GME. Sell some stock. Why not? You're $51 billion market value now. Sell some stock. You could sell $5 billion. It's only 10%. Unclear whether they'll do that, but it certainly would be helpful in terms of funding some of their needs on the content side. Uh, Of course, it has gone extremely well there for uh, Sherry Redstone, chairman, and Bob Backish, uh, of late. Guys, real quick to just uh, change it up entirely, did want to get to Chevron. Uh, it's a name that we've been focused on a bit. Of course, Exxon, Chevron, their various moves in, in both their uh, capital that they're uh, employing and, um, uh, and their uh, efforts on lowering carbon intensity. Uh, Chevron having its investor day, uh, they did update some guidance uh, in terms of um, doubling the return on capital employed by 2025. They increased their synergies from the Noble transaction to $600 million, and they are now targeting 35% carbon intensity reduction by 2028. I did speak to Mike Worth, the company CEO, recently about that very subject. Here's what he had to say. We're seeing significant 
uh, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions out of our operations. It takes uh, breakthroughs in technology. It'll take changes in policy, may take offsets in, in, in other markets to develop. Uh, but I do think as we get out into that time frame, uh, 2030, 2040, 2050, we will uh, be um, either have eliminated or be offsetting a significant part of the, the carbon associated with our upstream oil and gas production. Uh, he'll be joining the uh, gang on Closing Bell, uh, Morgan, I'm told, later today as well, uh, after uh, they conclude their investor day at Chevron. You can see stock has performed quite well, although, as we pointed out, not as well as ExxonMobil, at least this year, uh, which has diverged in its performance after both having rougher years last year. ExxonMobil certainly suffering more. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me, too, to see some of these uh, energy giants get into more of these uh, newer technologies, carbon capture, uh, as well as getting a lot of attention. Um, but... Carl, we're going to go to you because uh, I think we're going to get a bigger check on the markets. Yeah, a nice 1% pop here on the S&P, 25 on the NASDAQ, almost 4 on the chip index. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Yeah, we talked yesterday about mean reverse, and that's happening again today. So the two sectors that have had the biggest correction, which is China and semiconductors slash technology are the ones bouncing today as we try to get a little stability in interest rates. And that's where the debate is. Do we go to 2% on the 10-year or not? Right now, we're hovering in the 1.5 area. Markets are happy with that. So you see semiconductors, there's the SMH, and China. Both of these have had the biggest corrections because higher rates have impacted emerging markets as well. And what's the big emerging sectors this year? Banks and energy, they're the weak group, along with industrials. That's essentially the reflation trade, which today is taking a backseat to technology and China, which have been, of course, the big laggards. But the, a lot of the damage is done. OK, if you look at the big cap tech names, we're getting some bounces in the stuff that's been beaten up the most. And I'm talking about uh, Apple, which was down 17, 18 percent. AMD, Xilinx, NVIDIA, they were down more than 20 percent. PayPal and some of the other, let's call them software names, also were in pretty deep correction territory. You get a bounce today, but my point is a lot of damage has been done, and this is good and bad news. If you take a look at uh, how some of these semiconductor stocks have been correcting in the last couple of weeks, since the highs mid-February, Teradyne, Xilinx, NVIDIA, Microchip uh, Technologies, we're talking about 20% declines in this group. The same with the software sector. Again, the valuations were really high. Uh, And when you have uh, interest rates move up, it reduces the present value uh, of the cash flow of these companies rather noticeably. So you get PayPal, Paycom, some of these big software companies like Adobe. I call Adobe a software company all down more than 20 percent. So a lot of damage has been done. So here's the good news. The P.E. ratios, the multiples have dropped dramatically since the middle of February. Now, I know this sounds like high multiples. The S&P is 21, 22 times forward numbers, but this is nothing. Qualcomm was was in the mid-30s a month ago. Xilinx was in the 70s a month ago. NVIDIA was much higher. Teradyne was not, not twice as much, but notably higher. Uh, I don't know if you want to call them cheap or not. I'll let an analyst make that decision. But these are at levels that are much more attractive than they were uh, a a month ago. And I'm sure you're going to get some analysts coming out making note of that in the next couple of days if these kinds of numbers uh, hold up uh, and we don't have the dramatic swing up in prices, again, that will lower the multiples. Meantime, remember the higher interest rates had done a lot of damage to emerging markets uh, since mid-February. Again, we've seen some notable moves to the downside. China is already down, notably. There's the CSI 300, which is, I call 
called the S&P 500 of China. That's 16 percent off of its highs. Emerging market ETF, 10 percent. The Philippines, South Korea, Brazil. You can go down the list and look at all the emerging market economies. They're all down not far from 10 percent. Meantime, Europe is having the same moment the United States is having. We're getting a big cap rally. It's a lot of new highs out there in the insurance names like AXA uh, and th- some of the big bank names, in the material names like BASF. That's one of the biggest chemical companies in the world. That's at a new high. The auto companies, just like in the U.S., Daimler, BMW are at 52-week highs. The oil companies, Total, any the big Italian uh, uh, um, uh, oil company, that's at a new high. So Europe... Uh, Morgan is having the same moment that the United States is having uh, new highs in all of the reopening names, even though European reopening is not quite proceeding nearly as fast as the U.S. reopening. Morgan, back to you. That's right. But it is still proceeding. I'd also just note with the gain we're seeing in the Nasdaq composite today, we're actually now positive, albeit barely on the year now. Bob Pisani, thank you. It is time for the bond report. Okay. We're going to go to Rick Santelli for that. Hi, Rick. Good morning. Indeed, right now we're looking at long-dated Treasury yields down a half a dozen basis points in 10s and 30s. And, of course, globally, if you look at the higher-quality sovereigns, you'll see the same dynamic in the same pattern, maybe not at exactly the same levels. You see the intraday 10 there. Open the chart up to three-day chart, and this is important because yesterday we had 161 high on Friday at 162. Now we're giving up some ground. Here's what's fascinating. Right now, as we sit right around 153, that is the February 26th close. That was Fed Day. And that's really an important level because 10 years broke through that end of February level. Many other sovereigns have not. So if it holds here or not on a closing basis could be significant. Of course, the big talk, you even heard Bob today talking about multiples, talking about NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is really taking it on the chin. And the poster child for all of this Pricing torture is the 10-year U.S. note. Now, let's put a February 1 chart and put the said uh, antagonist on top of the protagonist there, and let's see what it looks like. What I see is right around 135 is when the biggest effects of the 10-year seem to have happened in the NASDAQ. Now, exactly what is it that I remember about 135? Aha! That was the time we were starting to close above what had been the double bottom in 2012 and 2016, right around the mid-130s. Once you start to close yields above that level, you made many nervous about what the future may look like. And, of course, what Jim Grant called the U.S. 10-year rate, a corrupted rate, but it is a global rate. Nonetheless, all eyes focused there. It helps to explain a lot. Now, in terms of the dollar index, it was a surprising run of strength, really, that started in about four weeks ago. Now, if you look at a one-week chart of the dollar index, you can see today is one of those days it seems to be taking a rest. And finally, August 1st chart, right around 92 plus is where all the resistance will be. We might be at the top of a range at the moment. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thanks. We'll see you uh, later today many times. Uh, Take a look at uh, the S&P here, up 51 points. NASDAQ up almost 2.6%, as Morgan said, green for the year once again, although it's only the uh, biggest rally since uh, last Monday when it was up 3%. We're back in a minute. Banks have rallied in a big way since the the pandemic uh, began back in uh, March of last year, almost a year ago. Wolfred Frost joins us with a look at the road ahead for the nation's largest banks. 
and what the rest of 2021 may bring. Hey, Wilf. Hey, Carl. Uh, first of all, though, let's quickly review the extraordinary rally, as you said. Uh, the KBW Banks Index up 115% from its low last March. The sector collapsed from and then rebounded to surpass its January 2020 high in the space of just 14 months. Why was that? Well, firstly, crucial regulatory and legislative relief for them and their customers, meaning we're likely to only see temporary accounting costs due to the pandemic rather than permanent cash losses. Secondly, market volumes and levels have boomed. That's great for trading and asset management. And thirdly, Economy and inflation are expected to rebound, creating a steeper yield curve than we've had for a couple of years. Looking forward, a few key things to note. Banks have been able to embrace work from home fully, with at times 95% not in the office. But they're also a sector that is reticent to depart from office life in full in the long term. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon saying recently of work from home, I do think for a business like ours, which is an innovative, collaborative apprenticeship culture, this is not ideal for us and it's not a new normal. It's an aberration that we're going to correct as soon as possible. Secondly, buybacks, which have been one of the key drivers of performance in recent years, are suddenly appearing less attractive for the simple reason that stocks have run up so much. This could add to another theme uh, that's been gaining traction, which is M&A and consolidation. And finally, the fight with fintech, likely to intensify. Uh, Jamie Dimon commenting on this uh, recently, saying, I expect to see very, very tough, brutal competition in the next te 10 years, but I expect to win, so help me God. Uh, we'll see how that all plays out going forward, Carl. Yeah, fascinating chat with you and the Squawk team earlier, <laughs> Wilf, about uh, how fintech's going to play in that, too. Oh, that part. Uh, Wilf, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Wilfred Frost. Uh, NASDAQ's up 350. We're back in just a moment. Somewhat uncharted territory. Yes. We wait for all of the S&P to open. There it is. There you see the cessation in ticks okay. on the S&P. Yeah. Means the first wow. circuit breaker whom the bell tolls. has been triggered. A few moments ago, the Nasdaq was officially down 20% from the high. That would put it on course to close in a bear market. I think that that's certainly a realistic thing. Uh, we knew we were going to start looking at some of these anniversaries, David, but that's a look at March 9th of 2020, exactly a year ago. Uh, I saw some other screenshots this morning uh, later in the session where things got truly ugly with a 10-year yield at, I think, 44 basis points. Yeah. Um, it is hard to believe it's been a year. It is. Uh, what? Yeah, a year and a lot of people would say, I think, seven years, right, in, in that year. And yet... Um, yeah, it's I, I listen, you go through so many different things. But when it comes to the 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 outcomes and the equity markets, I think if you had told somebody this is where we would be a year later, they certainly would not have uh, believed that was even possible from those lows. You heard the banks, for example, the incredible move. We've gone through so much. And then this the new cohort that we talk so often about as well of retail investors who are actively engaged in this market in a way that they may not have been previously. So many unexpected uh, events and so many things that we still are going to need to uh, fully understand and wrap our arms around uh, yet to come. Yeah, I, I, just as you say it, uh, David, GameStop's up 15 uh, percent back to 225. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 